and uh, uh, thank you everybody for coming. It means a lot to me that you're here. Uh, I'm going to be talking to you about this, uh, this particular painting of Sequoia, who's a Cherokee Indian. And I thought that the best way for me to arrange my talk, and maybe this is a little, a little bit on the gimmicky side, is to present it as the six Ps. I want to talk about uh, a person, that's Sequoia, his product, which you may see in the painting already. I also want to talk about his people, the Cherokee Indians. I want to talk about a paradigm that I think is remarkably interesting. I will also um, will talk specifically about the painting, and that in speaking about the painting, that'll bring us to our sixth P, which is a problem. And then I'm going to ask you to maybe help me out a little bit in solving this problem. So uh, to begin, uh, this is a painting of a man named Sequoia. He has another name, uh, George Guess, G-U-E-S-S, and also George Gist. And Sequoia, or George, uh, was born in 1770, probably in the northern Alabama, uh, kind of uh, southeastern Tennessee, uh, northern Georgia area. And he was born to a white father and uh, a Cherokee mother, who may herself have been part, uh, part Anglo-American. And he was born in 1770, about the time of the American Revolution. And uh, when Sequoia was a, a middle-aged man, I think about 50 or so, in around 1820, uh, he remarked to his friends, uh, Cherokee Indians themselves, that he was not that impressed with the white man's uh, talking leaves. Uh, talking leaves meant uh, pages of a book with, upon which the, uh, the printed word rested. He said he wasn't too impressed with that. He didn't think it was that big of a deal. Well, his friends said, yeah, it is a pretty impressive thing, and we kind of dare you to see if you can do it yourself. And so Sequoia, who was, I guess, a, a man who loved to have fun, he was quite uh, inventive and creative, and I guess he was somewhat of an artist, too. He accepted the challenge, and he uh, kind of secluded himself, um, working alone, uh, working day in, day out, week in, week out, uh, month in, month out, trying to find a way to represent the Cherokee language using written symbols. And this brings us to his, I guess, the second P, his product. What Sequoia produced was something called the Cherokee syllabary. And it's kind of like our alphabet, except there's an important difference in that each symbol in his syllabary, and we see a, a, a representation of it here, uh, represents a sound in the Cherokee language. And once you could master these 86, and he kind of revised it to 85 afterwards, after you mastered these 85 or 86 symbols, you could then write and read the Cherokee language phonetically. And it's a lot easier to pick up reading and literacy more quickly when you do it this way than when you do it with an orthography that's like our alphabet, in which combinations of letters and even individual letters themselves have different sounds depending on when and how they appear in a word. And so uh, literacy spread uh, rather rapidly amongst the Cherokees. And some scholars think, and I find this amazing, that Sequoia is the only human being in the history of humankind uh, to single-handedly develop uh, a writing system without being literate in any language. He wasn't literate in English at the time, and of course he wasn't literate in Cherokee because there was no written language, and so perhaps that's a really amazing thing in the history of humankind. 
And um, I also uh, found one thing that was interesting is he worked so hard at this and he isolated himself so much that it's said in Cherokee oral tradition that his wife actually came and burned down the shed in which he was working because she was so sick and tired of it. But nonetheless, he said, I'm going to go right back to it and he finished his project. So this brings me to the next topic, I guess the, the third P, if you will, which is the Cherokee people. And the Cherokee people are um, uh, a group of Indians who lived in the American Southeast, kind of in uh, uh, Georgia, kind of towards the northern and western part, western North Carolina, eastern Tennessee, northern Alabama. And they're, um, they're one of a group of five Indian tribes, which in the 19th century were called the five civilized tribes. Today, a lot of people shy away from that terminology because it implies that, okay, if these are the five civilized tribes, all uh, the rest of the 562 tribes must be uncivilized, right? So they're sometimes in today's literature called uh, the five tribes or the five southeastern tribes. But that term civilized is important because these Cherokee Indians um, uh, did something that was really uh, pretty amazing and that they embraced the Anglo-American uh, civilizational ideal embodied by so many things like farming. Uh, Cherokees were initially kind of a balance of uh, some hunting, some gathering, and some small farming. But as time went on, they increasingly stepped away from the hunt and increasingly became farmers. In fact, some of these Cherokees weren't just farming uh, small farms uh, at the subsistence level. They built large plantations. These were cotton plantation owners. In fact, some of these Cherokees, in their goal to assimilate and be just like their Anglo-American neighbors, began to acquire slaves, um, sometimes no more than a handful or a dozen or so. But there is one individual whose name is Mr. Van, V-A-N-N, who had over 100 slaves, I think 110 slaves he had uh, by the time the 1830s rolled around. These Cherokees did some other amazing things too. They were literate. They took uh, this Cherokee uh, syllabary and they developed um, a newspaper called the Cherokee Phoenix. And the Cherokee Phoenix was printed bilingually. It was printed in Cherokee so that uh, uh, some people could read it. And it was also printed in English so that Cherokees who were literate in English, and some were literate in English, they studied in schools, even went to college um, because they, they were trying to assimilate to the um, the Anglo-American paradigm. And I have here some copies of uh, volume one, number one, page one of the, uh, the Cherokee Phoenix. And if you look at it, you can see text in English and also in Cherokee as well. And if you want to maybe take one and pass this around the horn, that would be great. And um, what else did the Cherokees do? Uh, they became carpenters, they became blacksmiths, they went to school, they became literate in English and in Cherokee. And as you might remember from the earlier part of this, uh, of this talk, um, they intermarried with whites quite a bit. Um, Sequoia is maybe uh, uh, half Cherokee, half white, maybe three quarters white, one quarter Cherokee, we really don't know. But there's a lot of intermarriage going on. In fact, their principal chief at this time, named John Ross, was seven-eighths white, one-eighth Cherokee, supposedly. The Cherokees also, at the same time they were inventing this Cherokee phoenix, developed their own constitution. They were originally a, con a collection of small uh, autonomous towns, 
but they formed a centralized government and they formed their own constitution. They became a constitutional republic, just like the United States. They had a division of powers. They had an executive branch. Instead of having a president, they had a principal chief. They had a bicameral legislative branch. And they also had uh, a, a Supreme Court. And so in so many ways, they were assimilating to the Anglo-American paradigm. Uh, and that's the fourth P, this Anglo-American, quote-unquote, civilized paradigm. Now, one of the other things that happens to the Cherokee people is uh, they are uh, assimilating, becoming extraordinarily uh, uh, like their Anglo-American neighbors. At this time, a lot of Americans wanted the Indians out of state boundaries. They wanted to push them further west. And so in 1830, under the, uh, uh, with the great support of this individual right here, Andrew Jackson, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, which appropriated funds and made it an official policy of the United States government to pressure American Indians living east of the Mississippi to exchange their lands in the east for lands in the west, in particular in what's now Oklahoma. Oklahoma used to be called Indian Territory. That's because Oklahoma, for a long time, functioned as a relocation area for American Indians who were being moved westwards by this removal policy. And um, I thought that what I would do is I would kind of pass this, um, this book around and I kind of uh, dog-eared it right here, but I have some pictures of some Cherokee Indians and I would like you to take a look at how, how assimilated they look and you can maybe just scan some of these biographical sketches to see that some of these guys went to college. Uh, some of these people, um, uh, here's a picture of their, uh, their principal chief, John Ross. Okay, now this moves me, if you can, you can pass that around. Um, and I guess the, um, uh, this brings me to my fifth P, which is painting. I want to talk a little bit about this painting. Uh, this painting right here is by a man named Henry Inman, but it's after an individual named Charles Bird King. The original of this painting was painted in 19, I'm sorry, 1828, and it was painted here in Washington, D.C. And one of the, um, uh, there was a, a man named uh, Thomas McKenney who was appointed by James Monroe, President Monroe, to be the, um, I guess, the first commissioners of the Indian Affairs Office, the office for which I now work. And uh, Mr. McKenney was very concerned about uh, what was happening to American Indians out on the frontier and in the West. And he was afraid that they would, they would vanish, they would disappear, they would die off. And so he wanted to create a record of American Indians and American Indian life in the 19th century. And so he kind of set up an operation in which Indians who came to Washington, D.C. Uh, to meet with Congress, to meet with uh, the Great Father in the White House, they would sit in a studio and have their portraits painted. And so this is how we get this picture of, um, of Sequoia. And every other painting in that book that I'm passing around is part of this, um, uh, is part of this uh, endeavor to document American Indians. Interestingly, what happens is the collection, the original paintings, are destroyed in a fire in 18, uh, 1865 at the Smithsonian. So we don't have the original. 
but because Thomas McKinney wanted to create an illustrated book that had all these pictures in it, uh, these copies survived. We have lithographs of them in this Inman painting right here. was, I guess, done in part of the preparation of those Inman replications. Now also, in speaking about this painting, the, uh, the McKinnian Hall Indian Gallery, as it's sometimes called, is wonderful because we have paintings, not of allegorical Indians, but real-life Indians. These are real individuals with real histories. And when they came into the studio, um, they would talk about their histories. And so we get some really neat information about these people as individuals. However, some scholars have pointed out that we've really lost something with these McKinney and Hall paintings. Why? Number one is these are portraits. We're seeing an individual maybe from the waist up on a few occasions, maybe uh, a full body portrait. And we're seeing them seated in studios. And so in so many ways, these Indians are decontextualized. We have a black background here. We do have some context um, with uh, uh, some uh, Cherokee writing here. So I guess we do know why Sequoia is important. But in so many of these other paintings, we don't see much about Indian life. We just see an Indian individual. And this brings me to, I guess, what will be my, my sixth P, which is the problem. And I don't know if we can really say this is a problem, but I find it an interesting, uh, an interesting point to ponder. In the 19th century, we are having a stunning efflorescence of art depicting American Indians in the United States. It's not just kind of crude line art or woodcut drawing anymore. We are getting beautifully executed paintings, maybe with, with pencil, with pen, uh, with paint. We're also getting photographs and we are having not just tens or dozens, not just hundreds, but thousands and thousands of images that are being depicted. But what I find interesting, and perhaps a problem, is this paradigm that Sequoia represents, and the Cherokee people might be seen to embody, is not what we see represented in the paintings that are produced throughout the 19th century. If you look at so many of the paintings that we have, in the 19th century, or photographs, we will see people like Sitting Bull, Geronimo. What makes Sitting Bull and Geronimo famous? What was that? Their battles. Yeah, uh, their battles, their warriors, their war chiefs. If you go, I think, maybe two or three galleries down, you'll see three individuals, Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce, um, Sitting Bull, and Geronimo. These are war chiefs. If you walk to the gallery directly above us, we see some beautiful 19th century depictions of Indians. But what are they doing? Well, they're maybe performing a war dance. They're riding a horse. They're hunting buffalo. They're out on the plains. They're dressed in what we might say are, are pre-contact or early contact outfits. Sartorially, they don't look like we do. But at the same time, the reality of Indian life in the United States is that a lot of Indians are assimilating. And I guess the, the problem I have is, why isn't this depicted in the popular art of the period? And I guess um, uh, maybe that's a question that I would like to, uh, to throw out to you. And then hopefully we'll have about 10 minutes or so where we can do some uh, uh, questions and answer on Sequoia, the Cherokee people, and Indian painting in general. So why is it that we don't see more people like Sequoia? Yes? I think maybe there's a seventh P we could integrate here. Um, this portrait reminds me of a lot of portraits of priests from the Renaissance. And often in their 
Okay. Telling us a story, um, something we need to learn by looking at them, and that's what they want to part with us. So perhaps, like this rhetorical device, this kind of portrait is to show us how significant Sequoia was to establishing a language, and that's something that everyone could value. Absolutely, and I think that that's a wonderful point because when um, I found out that this uh, lecture series was called Commanders and Chiefs, which I think is a fantastic name. I thought, okay, I'm going to do a chief, but I'm going to do something a little bit non-traditional, and I'm going to pick out Sequoia, who was not a chief. He was not a chief, but nonetheless, he is a culture hero, if you will. Uh, to this day, the Cherokees love this guy. If, if Oklahoma became an Indian um, state as opposed to a United States states, it probably might have been called Sequoia. In fact, people were proposing that you can split Oklahoma in half, call the Indian half Sequoia, and call the western half Oklahoma. Um, but he is so important, and to this day, the Cherokee Phoenix that you're looking at was a very short-lived tribal newspaper, and several other uh, newspapers, not just Cherokee newspapers, but some of the other newspapers in Oklahoma. The, uh, the, there was a Chickasaw newspaper, the Choctaw Intelligencer, I think. Uh, these newspapers picked up later on, but to this day, the Cherokee, or even today, the Cherokee Nation has their own newspaper, and it's called the Cherokee Phoenix. And kind of like the, the header of that newspaper looks just like the one that you saw right there. And so he is extraordinarily important. And the other thing is, I don't know how many of you have read biographies on Andrew Jackson. There's one by the name of uh, Ward, uh, or uh, a, bi a biography written by a man named Ward. And I think it is from the 1960s or 1970s, but it's called Andrew Jackson, Symbol of an Age, because Andrew Jackson was the symbol of an age. Uh, this patrician founding father group that we have with the Jeffersons, the Washingtons, the Adamses, the Madisons, and Monroe kind of represented one type of America, but that type of America was receding into the past. We now have kind of a more rough-hewn, rough-and-tumble frontier sort of America. Andrew Jackson represented that, and I find what's so interesting is we have two symbols of an age, Andrew Jackson, symbol of an age, Sequoia, symbol of an age, and yet they're so diametrically opposed. Andrew Jackson wanted a civilized America, wanted the savage Indians out. Sequoia was becoming what Andrew Jackson wanted to, or the Cherokees were. But nonetheless, the Indian Removal Act was passed. The Cherokees fought this. Does anyone know how the Cherokees fought the Indian Removal Act? Mm, they fought it in the courts. Exactly. Uh, yes, well, we have the Worcester versus Georgia. Uh, there's actually th three cases, the, the Marshall Trilogy, which um, um, I guess I don't want to get into too much detail on them right now, but the foundation of most of Indian law today is predicated upon the Marshall Trilogy. Um, Worcester versus Georgia is one of the most important cases in which John Marshall <coughs> declares that the Cherokee Nation or, or that American Indians are domestic dependent nations they're not foreign nations, they were here first, but they nonetheless have some sort of status as a nation. And there's also a, a dependent adjective in there, domestic dependent nations. And so it's upon this concept, domestic dependent nations, that Indian tribes have a degree of sovereignty today, tribal sovereignty, yet at the same time the United States has some sort of responsibility a fiduciary responsibility, a trust responsibility to help out and to try to act in the best interest of the Indians. Even though Andrew Jackson didn't support the court decisions and he was not going to recognize Cherokee rights in Georgia, 
that those laws lived on past Andrew Jackson, and they're still very important to Indian law today. It's a great question, both. So what's the connection with Sequoia in California? The trees named Sequoia. I told you I was in California. I always feel there's some connection. Uh, you know, I don't know. I did watch a documentary recently that said that those, uh, that those trees out in California were named in part in recognition of Sequoia, but I was never able to verify oh, it's still that. Different. It's, it's spelled differently, yes. Um, and this is. Uh, um, there's no Y in Sequoia. Yeah, and, and there's no, uh, uh, no H either. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I, don't, I don't know what the etymology is. And what's interesting, too, is I try to look it up today, but I can't get onto my. Uh, a certain database, the Oxford Online, or the Oxford uh, uh, English Dictionary was where I was going to check that out. And um, although, here's one thing, is, is the, uh, the Cherokee people to this day are just an extraordinarily adaptable group. And I could go on and on and on and talk about that. But what I find, one of the things that I found interesting is that, uh, does anyone know where, um, Sequo- what ha- how Sequoia died? We, 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 Mexico yeah. somewhere he was searching for someone. Um, uh, Sequoia actually did not move out with the Cherokees during that forced march, the Trail of Tears in 1838-1839. He went out there earlier because he thought his interests would be better served by moving west earlier. Um, a group of Cherokees had supposedly left the Arkansas area to go down to uh, Mexico, northern Mexico, and Sequoia and a bunch of Cherokees went, back, went down there looking for those Cherokees who had gone to Mexico. Um, I guess didn't find them, and Sequoia, I guess, uh, ended up um, waiting, behind, uh, waiting somewhere while his party went off to find help. I guess he was last seen waiting in a cave, and from that, we, he just drops off. We don't know what happened to him. Uh, but also, uh, we're talking about California. Uh, what's happening in California in, 18, in the 1840s, 1850s? Gold rush. A bunch of Cherokees went out to uh, California to participate in the gold rush, and one of them even starts a newspaper out in California, and he's an editor uh, of that newspaper. It's interesting that it could that probably 100% Cherokees haven't existed for a long time. But being even 25% or 20%, that's their identity. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and the Cherokees take... And, uh, Were they forced into that? Um, well, it's it's. Well, um, uh, there was a lot of the Georgians really weren't very fond of the Cherokees, um, and they didn't like the idea of having a Cherokee state within their state, and so there, there was an awful lot of pressure. Plus, gold was found on Cherokee lands, and the Georgians wanted Cherokee land with the Cherokees off it, and so uh, there was some of that. But at the same time, uh, the Cherokees had been intermarrying for for quite a while, and. Um, uh, and one of the things that I think is interesting about the Cherokee people to this day is that they are extraordinarily adaptable. And um, it's almost as if they said that, hey, we did not define the rules of this game that we're playing in. That it was kind of forced upon us. But you know what? We are going to learn those rules. We are going to master them. And we're going to do well by them. 